You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. teaching text is John 20, 24 through 31. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thanks, John. Let's pray one more time. Father, I thank you so much for giving us your word, which you know is active and living. I just ask that right now that you would... Meet us in the midst of our own doubts that we have, that you would open our heart, that you would open our eyes to see you, Jesus, as you really are. And as a result, it would transform us from the inside out for our good and your glory. And it's in Christ's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. So last Sunday, churches around the world celebrated Easter. And Easter is a day for many people where they wake up with their hearts full of belief and gratitude and joy over what Jesus has accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. But Easter is also a day for others where they are not filled with belief, but with doubt. It's a day where they view what Christians do as, you know, basically these delusional people who get dressed up in pastels, then come together and celebrate the empty tomb of this first century peasant who's completely irrelevant to our lives today. And my guess is this morning is, uh, no matter where you, you know, are, how you came into this room, we can all relate, at least to some extent, with both of these groups of people. And what I mean by that is that we all have these moments in our life where we find ourselves filled with belief, and yet we also have our doubts. Remember the first time I was met with belief, I was 20 years old, I was in my bedroom, I was in college. And I was on academic probation and some other stuff had happened in my life. And I remember out of desperation, I cried out to God for the very first time and said, God, whoever you are, I want to know you as you are. Would you please save me? And I remember he came into my life and he made his loving presence known to me. And it was better than I imagined it was like. And I remember he transformed me from the inside out because of my belief. But then not too long after that moment, I was met with doubt. I remember even though I was still in college, I became a college pastor. And there was a young lady in our college ministry within a month and four days of each other that lost both of her sisters to two different accidents. 
One sister fell out of the back of a truck and died. And then two days after that funeral, she had another sister who gave birth to her first child, got complications because of the birth. And despite the fact that, that I went into the hospital, hundreds of others went to the hospital, thousands of people were praying over this young lady, she ended up dying as well. And in that moment, I remember I was met with doubt for really the first time in my walk with Jesus. I remember saying to God, like, and just asking him, like, God, how can you possibly be a good and personal and loving God and let something like this happen? And so there have been moments in my own life where I have had belief and yet I've also had doubt. Moments where I have personally watched God heal people on the spot. Like I've seen miracles with my own eyes. I have received prophetic words. I have watched prayers uh, become answered prayers. I've seen things happen that cannot be explained rationally apart from the fact that there is a living God who is active in my own life. But then there have also been times where I've left wondering, is anything actually happening here? Like, like, Like God, are you really there? And if you are there, are you listening? There are times where even I can preach the gospel on a Sunday, but then be defined by my works on a Monday. Where I believe it here, but then I get out in the real world and and my belief at times is again met with doubt. And so even as a 39-year-old pastor, right, who has a master's in the Bible, this is something that I struggle with. I'm a mixed bag of belief and doubt. And my guess is today, if you could be honest, the same is true for you. Michael Novak says it like this. Doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge that runs through every soul. Every soul. That's yours and that's mine. And this is where we meet Thomas. Thomas is a man who, much like you and me, he believed and yet he doubted. And because in the church, uh, we like to label people or we like to kind of minimize their life down to like a person's weakest moment in their life. We often refer to Thomas in the church as what? As doubting Thomas, which really is an unfair label whenever you look at his entire life. And what you need to realize is that Thomas was a man who was handpicked by Jesus to be one of his 12 disciples. Thomas saw Jesus' miracles and teachings up close. He witnessed a paralyzed man stand up, take up his mat, and go home. Thomas saw leprosy disappear off people's skin. He was there who handed, when he handed out food uh, to feed the 5,000 and then collected the leftovers from that miracle. Thomas was there when he saw a stone roll away from a tomb and then Lazarus watch out completely or walk out of it completely okay. And Thomas was also a man who was committed to Jesus. He stuck with Jesus when others walked away. You may remember the story where there was a bounty on Jesus' head whenever he was in the city of Bethany. And all the other disciples were like, Jesus, don't go. Bad things could happen. But Thomas said, and I quote, let's go with Jesus there ready to die with him. So this is a man who left everything to be with Jesus. He left everything. He risked everything to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did. And so when we come to John chapter 20 and we see that Thomas is doubting, what you need to realize is he's doubting not because he's a skeptic or he's a cynic, but he's doubting because he is disappointed. And at some point, we will all be disappointed in our walk with Jesus. I'll talk about that more actually next week. Thomas is disappointed and he's hurt and he's afraid. 
Imagine being in his shoes. Imagine pushing all of your chips in on Jesus like Thomas did. Imagine leaving your family, leaving your friends, leaving all that's familiar, leaving all that's comfortable because you really believe in your heart of hearts this man really is the Messiah. And yet you watch as this Messiah dies a brutal death on a cross and is buried in a tomb. This was a heartbreaking ending to the story Thomas never saw coming. And so here he is, he's hurting, he's confused, he's guarded, and he is now asking a question that many of us would have been asking, which is this, how can this man be the king of an eternal kingdom from what's inside a casket? Some of you, maybe you've been to this place in your life where you have said, you know, if I could just see one miracle, I would believe in God. Anybody ever been there? Like if I could just see one thing that I see in the scripture, just one thing that happens in this Bible would happen in my life, that would be enough for me. And yet what we learn from Thomas is that even miraculous moments with Jesus are not enough to sustain a lifetime of belief. That even if, like Thomas, you really could witness a miracle firsthand, those miracles would not serve as some sort of perfect antibody to your doubt. And you know why that is? Because eventually something will happen in your life that does not match up with your theological beliefs. Eventually, something will happen in your life that is going to challenge your faith and everything you thought to be true about God. And as a result, it's going to leave you disoriented and doubting. You see, Thomas was prepared to die with Jesus, but he was not prepared to live without Jesus. He was prepared to see Jesus roll away the stone from anyone else's tomb, but not from his own tomb. And so in this moment, because of this event, the rug of his belief was pulled out from underneath him, and he's now left questioning everything. The, ra- the razor of doubt is cutting right through his own soul. And so here's a man who believes, and yet he also has his doubts. And here's what I want you to realize uh, about doubts. The difference between doubts and beliefs is this. Doubt paralyzes us, whereas belief moves us. It's important that you hear that, because we're in a culture right now where it is actually cool to be a doubter. Doubt at its very best can keep you in a holding pattern, but belief at least has the potential to move you forward. And the reason for this is because belief, please hear me, is not just an intellectual agreement, but rather belief is an act of the will. It is something that when you believe has the power to move you forward, even if you don't have 100% certainty or understand how the journey is going to end. And so whenever Jesus says to Thomas, right, we sit in here, Thomas Stop doubting and believe. He's not telling Thomas and he's not telling you and me, hey, just flip on a switch and stop having any questions. Just flip a switch on in your brain and have 100% certainty. That's not what Jesus is saying. But rather when he says stop doubting and believe, he's saying, trust me even when you don't see the whole picture. He's saying, trust me even when you don't see everything clearly. And that's why in verse 29, if you look with me, Jesus told Thomas, he said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those, and the word that Jesus uses there for blessed is the word makarios. It means happy. Happy are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. In other words, Jesus says to Thomas, you believe because you see my scars. But you want to know who's going to be happier than you, Thomas? You want to know the people who's going to be more blessed than you, more content than you, more fulfilled than you? It's not the people who get to see me like you do. It's the people, talking about those of you sitting here today, who one day will not see me physically walking alongside them and choose to believe anyways. It's those are the ones who will be the happiest. 
the most blessed of anyone. Which I think therefore begs the question, how do we do this? Like, like when Jesus is not physically sitting in one of these chairs today. I mean, he's not on the stage physically preaching this morning. When he's not walking physically beside you in the midst of your own trials and your suffering. Like, like how do we continue to trust Jesus? How do we put one foot in front of the other when your health continues to deteriorate? Like, like when your prayers go unanswered. When your kid doesn't get better, when you don't get that promotion, when your marriage falls apart and you're left alone to pick up the pieces of your broken life, how do we keep trusting God is who he says he is and will do everything he says he's going to do when he doesn't just swoop in like an avenger and make everything better? When your current reality does not match what you read in here, when your doubt seems bigger than your faith, what do you do then? And this is where we come to our story. Because what we see here are four things or four steps or four movements you can take whenever doubts begin to become, whenever doubts begin to creep into your own life. And so if you're taking notes, here it is. If you want to handle doubt in a healthy way, the first thing you have to do is this. You have to learn to be honest about that doubt. You have to learn to tell the truth about it. In verse 25, it says, The other disciples told Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You see, at this point, Thomas is surrounded by all these people who believe. They come to Thomas and they say, there's reason for hope. There's reason to believe. Like we've seen the risen Jesus. We've seen the Messiah. And Thomas says, good for you. That's not enough for me. Good for you that you have that faith. Good for you. You've had that encounter with God, but that's not going to work for me. If God wants me to believe, he knows where I am so he can come and find me. That's essentially what he says. See, Thomas had no room in his mind for a Messiah who could suffer and die. And therefore he had no room in his mind for a risen Jesus. Thomas had established his theology. He knew without a shadow of a doubt who God is and this is not it. And this is the place again where all of us will arrive at some point. This place where because of an event we experience, what we believe will not line up with our current reality and we will begin to have doubts. Some of you right now, you have doubts that God is not good. Some of you, you doubt that God is in control. Some of you here, you doubt that God is present or he's loving or he's forgiving or that he has your best interests in mind. And when you find yourself in this place like Thomas, listen, the first thing you have to do is be honest about those doubts. To begin to tell the truth about what is actually going on inside of your head and your heart. And the reason this is so important is, listen, some of you have been convinced growing up the church is not a place for doubt. That doubt's not safe here. And so what you will do is you will doubt, but you won't tell anybody about that doubt. In fact, you will mask that doubt with spiritual language to look more spiritual than you really are. And in the process of that, you actually will become spiritually hollow. You will begin to disintegrate. And eventually, I've seen this happen, you might even eventually walk away from this thing altogether. And so when you have doubts, be honest about them. Tell the truth about them. Secondly, if you want to handle your doubts in a healthy way, wait. Wait. In verse 25, it says, So the other disciples told Thomas, We have seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, but my finger where the nails were, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Verse 26. A week later, or a more literal translation is, eight days later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I read that this week, and I begin to think, why did Jesus wait eight days to meet Thomas in his doubt? You ever wondered? Like, what was he doing those eight days? He knew Thomas was doubting. Why wait eight days to go and meet him in his doubt? Isn't it frustrating to you that we follow a God who will not immediately resolve your spiritual tension? Like, doesn't it bother you? It does me. Like, doesn't it bother you just a little bit that you worship a God who never seems to get in a hurry? A God who actually is constantly telling us to wait on him. You ever have a spouse that you're waiting on? Right? right? I'm not, I, I didn't say anything. <laughs> I'm not. That was not good. There was not an illustration in that. But if the shoe fits. So. <laughs> Thank you, Holy Spirit. All right. So. I did a quick Google search this past week. There are 108 commands in the Bible where God commands you to wait on him. Why is waiting so important to our spirituality? Here's why. Because in Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And without waiting, there is no need for faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And without waiting, there is no need for faith. I mean, think about it. A God of immediate gratification who gives you whatever you want, whenever you want, that requires no faith. But it is actually in your waiting and it is in the silence that your faith will begin to grow. And what we will learn when we are waiting is this. That the silence of God never equals the absence of God. That God is just as much in the silence as he is in the miraculous. I told y'all when I came back from my sabbatical, that is the thing God taught me over my sabbatical. It is one of the most important lessons I've learned to this day. And it's an important lesson that you have to learn as well. That God is just as much in the silence as he is in the miraculous. John Foreman, who's the lead singer for Switchfoot, um, one of my favorite singer-songwriters, he has a, a song he released last year entitled, Jesus, I Have My Doubts. And here are some of the lyrics. Jesus, I have my doubts. When everything that's right feels wrong, and all my belief feels gone, and the darkness in my heart is so strong, can you reach me here in the silence? Singing these broken songs, looking for the light for so long, but the pain goes on and on and on. Can you reach me here in the silence? If you have not asked that question, you will. When the pain goes on and on and on, when your health does not improve, when the marriage is not restored, when the money does not appear in your bank, when you don't get the promotion, when your prayers feel like they're hitting the ceiling, when the pain goes on and on and on, can you reach me in the silence? And what we learn from the story of Thomas is the answer to that question is yes. Absolutely. 
we learn that God is just as present in the silence as he is in the miraculous. And therefore, let me just say this before we move on. If you find yourself today or in the future doubting God, if you find yourself living in this gap between who God is and what you're actually experiencing in the moment, if you find yourself in the silence, in the waiting period with all my heart, listen, do resist the temptation to control your situation. Resist the temptation to manipulate and make things happen. Trust God. Wait on God and know that oftentimes it is in the waiting and it is in the silence that God will do his best work in you and through you. And so if we want to process our doubts in a healthy way, we need to tell the truth about those doubts. We need to wait. Third, we need to belong. We need to belong. In verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, I told the first service, wouldn't it have made more sense if we would have named him Doubting Didymus? Like it did with, it, I don't know where Doubting Thomas. Like two Ds, right? Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so on the original Easter morning, Jesus appears to the disciples, but Thomas isn't there. Why isn't Thomas there? I think because doubt leads to distance. When we begin to doubt, we often pull back from our community. So rather than staying with the disciples, he's sitting in isolation. And when you are in isolation, you miss out on the tangible presence of the risen Jesus. Talking about silence and solitude, talking about isolation. He's isolated here. He misses out on the tangible presence of the risen Jesus. And then look what happens next. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was where this time? He was with them. The doors were locked and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And so now Thomas encounters God and he encounters God, get this, not by withdrawing, but by remaining. He remains with this faith family, which by the way, it's a group of people he don't even agree with on on every topic, right? They think Jesus is risen. He don't really believe Jesus is risen. But he still stays in this community, and by remaining in community, it is there that God appears to him. And this is such an important lesson for you and me today, and it's this. If we are going to overcome our doubts, if you're going to overcome your doubts, we need each other. We need the church. We need the body of Christ. That's what, that's what the church is, Paul says. It's the body of Christ, which means this is the place where because Jesus is not physically here anymore, it is through the church, through his body, that we experience his presence in a tangible way. And when the church is at its best, when the church is at its best, it is a place where we meet people right where they are, even in the midst of their doubts. And we do not shame them but we help them and we pray for one another and we encourage one another and we point each other back to the truth over and over and over again. There was a time in my life where I thought for about five minutes that I would compete in a triathlon. And I decided not to because I Googled the price of bikes and I was like, you could buy a car for that. It's ridiculous. But in that five-minute window, I learned the difference between a triathlon and cycling. Here's what I learned. A triathlon is an individual sport. And so because of that, you cannot legally get behind another biker and draft off of their momentum. Cycling is different. Cycling is not an individual sport. It is a team sport, and you actually are meant to get into a line and draft off of each other's momentum. And so in cycling, if you ever watch it... um, 
you have a guy in the front who uh, takes time. Basically, he gets in the front and he and he takes on the wind and the resistance, which makes it easier for others. And then whenever the guy in the front gets tired of taking the wind and the resistance, he goes back and then someone from the back comes to the front and they take the wind and resistance. And then when they get tired, they go to the back and then someone else takes the wind and the resistance. And I thought to myself, man, like that is a picture of the church whenever she is at her best. Like, like when you're in doubt, you come behind my faith. And you let me take the wind and you let me take the resistance. And then whenever I'm in a season where I'm struggling or I'm weak, I go to the back and I come behind you and I take on, right? I, I, because of your strength, like you take the wind and you take the resistance, which allows me to get the break that I need. And then so on and so on. And in that process, what happens is we help each other overcome our doubts. That's the way the church should work. And so when doubts come creeping in, we tell the truth, we wait we belong, and then lastly, when we do this, we are found. We are found. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, talking about Jesus, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. One morning in the mid-1970s, Philippe Petit walked across a wire suspended between the iconic Twin Towers. You can actually Check out the documentary on on Netflix. It was an absolute spectacle. Almost exactly 27 years later, two commercial flights were hijacked and steered directly into those same towers, killing thousands of people. It was also, if you remember, a spectacle of the worst kind. A photo was actually snapped during Petit's walk across the wire that was meaningless for nearly three decades but became iconic. Let's go to the next slide. As you can see in the picture, there's a plane behind the man on a wire, and it seems to be flying so low that it's actually going to hit one of the towers. And so in this picture, what you have are these two moments that seem to be a lifetime apart, but they're caught in a single frame. So for just a moment, us now on the other side of it, we can see how these two stories overlap. And you see, this is what ultimately happens to Thomas on this day in John 20. He is living between these two stories. There's there's the story of the world. Jesus is dead for good. And then there's the story that Jesus had been telling them that one day I'm going to die, but then I'm going to raise from the dead. And both of these stories seem to be completely incompatible on resurrection morning. But then for just a moment in John 20, the stories overlap in a small holiday room in central Jerusalem. And Thomas, who is disenchanted by the empty tomb, now encounters the presence of the living God. And it is here that the risen Jesus reminds us this, that God is not only available to be sought, but he is also the seeker. That God is not just someone, despite whatever story you're believing, who invites you to come and knock on his door, but he actually comes and knocks on your door. He comes to where you live, even if it's in the bad part of town. And no matter how messy your house is, No matter what skeletons you have in the closet, no matter how big your doubt or your fears or your addictions or your religious hangups, he chooses to walk into your world and not to condemn you, but to love you and to offer you a life that even death itself cannot take away. This is what we see happen right here. The two stories overlap. And Thomas is at his lowest point when it feels like all hope is gone. Jesus shows up to his room. And when Jesus shows up to Thomas, look at how Thomas responds. He responds with these words, my Lord and my God. Scholars tell us this is the highest words of praise 
to Jesus in all four Gospels. The highest words of praise, which means that the greatest doubter in the room, when God meets them, they can go from being the greatest doubter to the greatest worshiper. I want to actually close here. Why do I believe? Why do I believe? Like if the razor's edge of doubt runs through my own soul, and it does, why do I continue to believe in Jesus? One of the reasons I believe, as I shared earlier, is I've seen lives transformed by Jesus. My life has been transformed by Jesus. I was one way, but now I'm completely another way. Another reason I believe is because of the miracles I've seen, the prayers that have been answered. I've watched things happen that cannot be explained apart from the fact that God really is alive and active and working in the lives of normal people, ordinary people. But even more than that, let me tell you, and this may not be a very romantic answer, at the end of the day, the reason I continue to trust in Jesus is because I just don't know where else I would go if I didn't trust in Jesus. This is where I can relate so much with Peter. Remember the story when all of Jesus' disciples are leaving and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, are you going to leave too? And how does Peter respond? Where else am I going to go? Not a very romantic answer, but I love the honesty. Where else am I going to go? See, the truth is, if you don't build your life on Jesus, you will build your life on someone or something. You ever heard, you ever heard people refer to Christians as people of faith? You ever heard that? Like Christians are people of faith. Anybody? No one's shaking their head. Yes. Okay, a few of you have. Thank you. Feedback's great. Always welcomed. Um, The truth is, every person you meet is a person of faith. Like we cannot make it through the day without faith. In just a moment, I'm going to go outside. I think my truck is there. And I doubt anybody has slashed my tires. What'd you say? Oh, okay, all right. Uh, I thought you said I did. I was like, okay. Uh, So I believe, I have faith that when I put my key in the ignition and I start it, something's going to happen under the hood that I have no idea. Well, actually, I have no idea how a car starts. I'll be honest. I have no idea what happens under the hood. But I trust whatever needs to happen will happen. And then I trust I'm going to drive home without getting hit. And then I'm going to go eat my lunch. Now, here's the thing. I don't have 100% certainty that any of that will happen. And here's just my point. Every day we have to put faith in someone or something. And the reason I am a Christian is because I have chosen to put my faith in Jesus above anyone or anything else, including myself. And the reason I continue to trust Jesus is because Jesus himself never stopped trusting. You ever thought about that? Jesus came to this earth and he suffered more than any of us ever would. He experienced hardship and loss and he never once doubted that his father was a good father. He continued to trust God the father even on the cross. From beginning to end, he trusted that he was in control and he was good. That's one of the reasons I trust Jesus. Another reason I need to trust Jesus is because nobody has loved others the way Jesus has loved others. He loved the last, the least, and the lost, the people who are typically rejected by society, he brought in. I trust Jesus because even though he only had a three-year window to save the world, think about that, he still took time to have long conversations over a meal with the oppressed and the oppressor 
the rich and the poor. I love Jesus because we find him weeping over a city that continues to look for satisfaction in things apart from him. And ultimately, I continue to trust Jesus because he is the great God-man who entered into our suffering so that by his suffering, we can find a hope and a healing that is as rugged and resilient and eternal as the resurrection itself. And I trust Jesus because despite our failures and flaws, he still trusts us. You ever thought about that? In Matthew 28, in one of the interactions the risen Jesus had with his disciples, he gives the great commission and the Great Commission is what? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and as preachers. We love that text. Love to preach the Great Commission. But we often forget the first part of the Great Commission. In verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Wow. After seeing everything they have seen, including Jesus getting up out of a grave, there are some that are like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm convinced yet. And what's amazing to me is rather than Jesus saying, what a fool. Rather than shaming them, he says, hey, go. Go. I still want you to be my messengers. I still want you to join me in my mission of taking hope and healing to the world that is only found in me. And I just share that to say this as we close today. If you're sitting here this morning or watching online and you find yourself filled with doubts, know that God is not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your doubts. He's not condemning you for your doubts. And he can still, even in the midst of your doubts, unleash a beautiful plan for your life that is for your good and his glory. And so to those of you who maybe are in the room right now who have been kept awake by questions you're too afraid to ask out loud, to those of you who find yourself limping from a blow or an event that has rocked your faith, to those of you who maybe at one time were so in love with Jesus, but now you feel your passion beginning to wane, remember that God is just as present in the silence as he is the miraculous. Remember that he is faithful and he is good and that he himself will meet you right where you are. And if you will continue to trust him, even when it doesn't always make sense, even when you don't see the whole picture, if you will continue to trust him, if you will choose, listen, just to take the next right step, just the next, don't think about all the other steps. Have just the next right step in front of you. Even when you don't see how it's all going to end out, if you will do that, you can trust that God will meet you there and he will do a work in you that is bigger and better and more beautiful than you could ever imagine. With that, I'm going to invite those who are going to be preparing communion to go ahead and come forward. And the band, if you will, to go ahead and come forward. And for the rest of you, um, let me just explain to you how communion works. I know we have a, a few guests this morning. So, Jesus is not physically here, and that is why he gives us a physical reminder that he is here. That's what communion is about. It is a physical, tangible reminder of the presence of God. And so the way this works, for those of you who are, are new to our church, um, the bread, Jesus says, represents his perfect, sinless life that he lived on our behalf. We'll have uh, servers up here wearing gloves. It'll tear off a piece of, of this gluten-free bread uh, for you. 
they'll dip it in the juice, and the juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you're not comfortable taking it this way, we also have some um, disposable cups in the back. You can, you can partake that way as well. And if you're a Christian here, if you're a member of our church, you're welcome to partake of communion in this way. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to encourage you, man, rather than receiving communion, receive Christ. You know, I didn't, I didn't actually get to it in the sermon, but we read it earlier where it says that that belief in Jesus is where eternal life is found. One thing we all have in common here today is we're all longing for life. We're all longing for fulfillment. We're all longing for satisfaction. And ultimately, that is found in Jesus. And so if you've never fully surrendered your life to him, we encourage you today to do that. You don't have to have all of your, your questions answered. You don't have to have all the mysteries solved. You still may have doubts, and that's okay. Just come with what little bit of faith you have. Come with the empty hands of faith and just say, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want you to save me. And trust that he will meet you in that space. I actually want to pray over time and do this. I want to invite you to go ahead and stand with me and just close your eyes. And I just want to take a moment before we jet out of here to just give you a moment to be honest about your own doubts. But you just talk to God about your own doubts right now. For some of you maybe listening to this, you doubt that God is with you. You doubt that he cares. Or if he does care, he don't care as much as you do. Not as, he don't care as much about your kids. He don't care as much about your marriage. He don't care as much about your happiness. Some of you doubt that God sees you. And if he does see you, you doubt that he truly is smiling at you, that he loves you, that he's present. Just right now, would you confess those doubts? Maybe even for some of you, just confess that, God, I don't believe you're listening to me. I don't believe this even matters, what we're doing right here. I don't believe anything's going to change. I don't believe that you're going to help me. And then just ask him to help your unbelief. Father, it is so hard to believe in a society like we're living in where it's so easy to doubt everything. It's hard for me to believe at times. And I pray that as a church, it would be a place mixed of belief and doubt where it's okay to not be okay, where it's okay to question. But I pray that, Jesus, that you would grant us an extra measure of faith today, that you would meet, meet us in our pain, meet us in our loneliness, meet us in our questions, meet us in the mysteries, meet us in the I don't know. God, we desperately need your presence. We are lost without you. We have no hope without you. We cannot do this apart from you. And so I pray for everyone here and watching online that you would just manifest your presence among them and that you would help them to know that you are just as much in the silence as you are in the miraculous, that you have not left them, you have not forsaken them. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.